0: Listening to Manufactured with Kim von der Weert and
1: Jesse Lee, a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Join us every week in conversation with the people who manufacture what we wear.
0: This week, we chat to Rishu Fuller, the founder
1: and the creative director of Tonlei, and Suk Priya Yan, Tonle's general manager. Just to preempt some confusion, you're going to hear us refer to Supriya by her nickname, Sreon. We shared this in the introduction for part one of this conversation too,
0: but it's worth repeating. Tongli is special for a lot of reasons. For starters, they were one of the first companies to start making new clothes out of pre-consumer waste, out of cuts and overstock coming from larger garment factories. But even then, a t-shirt still has to be cut out of fabric panels, resulting in some scraps. Tong they cut these scraps down into thin little strips that are then knotted together to form a new yarn. The yarn is hand woven into new fabrics to make new garments. There is a great video on Huffington's post that showcases the process. We will put a link to it in our
1: show notes. And while their zero waste process is certainly worth celebrating, it's actually not the reason we wanted to have Tonle on the show. They're one of the few brands we know of, quote unquote, sustainable or not, that does their own production. It's a brand and a
0: manufacturer in one. To put it in simple terms, the people making the clothes they sell on
1: their website are also on their payroll. Tonle is also pretty special to me for personal reasons. It's where I got my start in the fashion industry. In part one of our conversation, we talked to Rachel about why Tonle does its own manufacturing and what that's meant for the company as they've grown. Rachel shares how being a manufacturer has made it difficult to get investors on board and how she's balanced the industry's emphasis on short-term shareholder returns with her convictions about what sustainability requires. In this episode, we take a deep dive into Tonle's design process, we look at how Tonley's ownership structure shapes and enables a collaborative design process and co-creation between the sales side of the business and the production side of the business. And one last quick announcement, we've teamed up with Transformers Foundation on a couple of live panel discussions for suppliers by suppliers. Our goal? To cross-pollinate between the denim supply chain and supply chains in the rest of the apparel industry. The first panel discussion is on Tuesday, the 13th of April, and is all about vertical integration. As supply chains came to a screeching halt last year, consolidation and vertical integration became the industry's latest buzzwords. But these are ambiguous terms that can mean a lot of different things. How and why do suppliers at various tiers decide which parts of the production process they're actually going to do? And how does this shape approaches to sustainability? The panel is free and open to the public. Be sure to register via the link on our homepage at www.manufacturedpodcast.com. If
0: you are on Instagram, please follow us to grow the conversation at manufactured underscore podcast. Or
1: sign up to our weekly newsletter instead on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com to find out what we're reading, what we're thinking, and what we're wishing.
0: If you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation for our homepage. And finally, don't forget to leave us a rating on iTunes and hit subscribe.
1: <laughs> on, you joined Tonle in, I think, 2015, is that yes, right? Yes, I joined Tonle 2015. And now you are the general manager of all the Cambodian operations, so that means human resources production shipping and logistics finance cash flow overseeing purchasing of fabrics and raw materials finished goods inventory <laughs> you name it you're involved
2: actually when i first start in tonle i'd be like a accountant i mean like maybe i go like to the first like I worked in, in Tonle like for five years and a half and the feeling like you know like working, it's just not only like uh, about like I think mostly for me it's about like a people here. Mm-hmm. I really like warm with them, the feeling and also like about like what Tonle is uh, working on about like zero wise, everything. And thing that keep me like you know like to keep like going and like a year by year is also about like uh, I learn a lot
1: of things, and I have been like uh doing something that I love. Yeah. Um. But I I also think and and having been through some of these tough moments with you myself, Sreon, and as well as with Rachel and with Jesse and everyone on this podcast right now, I think production is an inherently tough job, and I don't know if I say that just because I'm biased because I've done it, but I would describe it as sort of being on a on a wheel sometimes and just having to keep up on a really a really quick pace. And, you know, you get one order out and then it's on to the next one and then on to the next one. And I suppose in some ways that's true of, of any job, but there's there's certain a certain like even as a manager, somebody who's not on the production floor making the products, there's a certain physicality, I think, to it all of, of running around and seeing stuff get made. And if you miss the deadline, then you miss the deadline and the goods don't go out. And then the consequence of not making that deadline is very immediate. Maybe you won't be able to make payroll. You, you always face problems.
0: It's it's rare. How to say it? it's like uh, if everything is functional or everything functions very smoothly, that is what it should be. Uh, if there is a problem, then you need to fix the problem. So when everything goes well, you don't hear any positive feedbacks because it's what it should be. But when mm-hmm. there is a problem, then you can hear alarms everywhere.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then on top of that, there are all these other things that are outside of your control that you're also sort of trying to manage and to to, to balance. On any given day, we had a plan A, a plan B, a plan C, a plan D, a plan E for like all the different possible scenarios. Like if this fabric arrived on time, but the other fabric didn't arrive, or if this order came through, but the other order didn't come through, or maybe... One sample approval came through from the brand, but another sample wasn't approved. So we could start production on product A, but not yet on product B, you know, or, or sometimes it would even happen that the sample was approved and we'd started production, but then the brand would come back and say, oh, actually, we want to change something and we'd have to pull it from production and and, and rework it. And that's ex- that was ex- that was a ton of work and also exhausting.
3: Yeah, and I think a lot of that comes from treating, I mean, production is... The word I I feel a lot with production is that it's treated as as very extractive and, you know, it's like, what can we get out of this rather than what can we create together? And, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think that's where Tonle is unique in the sense that because we are a brand and um, manufacturer, we can adapt our manufacturing. You know, if there's a problem, we can say, oh, well, we can work around this. We can change something. We can pick a different color. We can pick a, you know, we can, um, change this design, you know, we can adapt the production to meet the needs of the brand and vice versa. And the people work. And I think with one of the things that I I really appreciate about Sione is that she's a person who really will take any challenge and say like, what can I learn from this? You know, but I think Mm -hmm. in a production environment, a typical production environment, you can't, that, that opportunity doesn't happen because, it's like, there's a right way to do things. And it's this brand needs us to do this. And, you know, it has to be executed like this. And then if not, it's wrong. And then we just have to keep trying to get it to that point.
1: And one of the things that really always like that I always loved about working at Conley is I think there's very much a sense of and we'll get more into this in a minute. But I think there's very much a sense of shared goals. You know, this the sales side, the brand side of the business, if you will, the sales side of the business and the production mm-hmm. side of the business are on the same team. And like it, it brings to mind, Jesse, I remember when we were working um uh, at Pactics and we were doing like a product develop we were doing a sample for I don't even remember who the customer was, but a big a big brand. And like, with do you remember with the red color and the red color didn't have the color fastness result? <sighs> yeah. 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 And it was like, we just went in circles for, I think months because they wanted a certain red, but that red like just didn't have the color fastness results that they were looking for. So then we would adjust the color. So we would achieve the color fastness results. And then but it's not the red that they want. Color. Yeah. And then it's not the red they want. And so then we were would- they wanted. and
0: For f- more than four weeks, eventually we have a delivery problem. So eventually the customer said, okay, maybe we can accept a different red color, but you guys need to figure this out in the next shipment. And, <laughs> and there is no way out. It's a dead end. Yeah.
1: yeah. So with this anecdote in mind, which I'm sure will resonate with a lot of suppliers who are maybe listening to this conversation. I'm, I'm curious to talk to both of you, Rachel and Sraon, about kind of your design process. Well, how you go from an idea of what you might sell to something that's actually for sale. Because I think if you take us through that process, it, it really, I think, showcases how the 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 brand and the sales side of the business and the production side of the business collaborate and
3: work in a way that's just really unusual. You know, Tonley sort of takes what I think a lot of industry people would consider to be a very backwards approach. Um, and a lot of business advisors as well would probably say this is, you know, <laughs> investors. Too, investors huh? yeah <laughs> um, You know, we actually start first with what is our capacity? How much can we produce? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how long do each of these pieces take to make? And so, therefore, how many can we make in a season? What are the skills of our team? Are there any new skills that we could feasibly learn for this new collection? Um, you know, and then raw materials. What can we get that's in Cambodia? That's coming from the markets as scrap waste and dead stock waste, uh, and sometimes there's only one role or there's only a couple of like, there's only a little bit of this color left. And we also then look at what scraps we have from the previous season's collection. And then myself, along with, um, Ray, the technical designer, and now Kim Sua kind of develop the concepts, um, together for the collection based on all of those constraints that we have. And also You know, at that point, when we start, you know, after we've looked at what the constraints are with our production, we then look at end capacity, not just constraints. Um, We then look at, okay, what's sold well, you know, what, how many wholesale buyers do we have? How many, you know, like how much can we feasibly sell? And Mm -hmm. can we make that with the capacity that we have? And then we design, you know, with all of those things in mind. So you know it's like starting first with our production capacity and and abilities and capabilities and raw material uh, available materials and then you know saying okay how do we meet our customers requirements and demands with the set of wow. tools that we have
0: tony is a self driven company you know other companies other manufacturers uh other textile companies I would call them as a market driven Market-driven means what does the market need they will produce. So they were pr- produce what the client wants, mm-hmm. what the client thinks the market needs. And it only is like self-driven. So you look at your your production capacity. You look at your fabric stock. You think about how to make the production um, not easier, but how to make it possible to produce. And then from there, it's like a reverse process. From there, you start your product design. So it's like driven the process is driven by the company its own need not driven by what we think the market needs
1: and it, it's worth pointing out just how difficult i think at least in the way that that the fashion industry operates today how difficult this would be in a in a more conventional brand supplier relationship because it requires really radical transparency about a lot of things that at least right now people are 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 reticent to be transparent about. And I'll I'll give an example. Um, You know, if I, as a factory manager, had to tell the brand that I was producing for about my production capacity, that would make me very nervous because the last thing I want the brand to know, my customer, is how busy I am. And uh, because if they know I'm not busy, then maybe they'll use that information to pressure me into a lower price. And on the brand side, I can speculate that most brands probably wouldn't want to give up information about things like their inventory levels and how well a particular product has managed to sell. Because that makes them pretty vulnerable as well. I mean, it's, it's kind of nice to be in the position that when, as a brand, when you say jump, the factory jumps. And that has a lot to do with the fact that there's, there's very little visibility on the factory side as to what's happening on the brand side. So, so the, I mean, this transparency that Sreone and, and Rachel that you're describing is is really pretty radical, I think. And I think there's another thing that's worth pointing out, and, and that's that it's the production team that's actually the one also making these samples. In a lot of factories, you have a separate sample-making team and the s- sample making team, you know, makes the sample, it gets approved by the customer. And then once it's approved by the customer it or the brand, and then it gets passed to production. And one of the things that like Jesse and I worked, mm. you know, saw a lot was that th- this created a lot of tension also between our sample making team and our production team, because how you make one piece also isn't the same as how you make lots of them. And sure, that's sort of the job of the industrial ge- engineers is to address this gap. But like... At least in my experience, it 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 it's 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 very rarely a seamless transition. And then, like the production staff, were constantly sort of mad at the sampling staff because you know they hadn't thought about this or they hadn't thought about that or you know, and 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 vice versa. The sample making team was like, well, I don't know why production is making this so difficult, and it caused a lot of friction internally. I'll give you
3: like an an anecdotal like story about that too. So like. As you know, we sometimes produce for other clients. Um, I'm actually trying to do as little of that as possible because every time we do it, it's really ironic because people expect that they should pay less when they design their own product because the value is put on the design, but it's actually way harder for us to produce someone else's product because we can't adapt the, the design to the production, which is what Tony does. So like if we design something, if me and Ray like come up with something and we take it to production and they're like, oh, that's going to be too hard to produce or it's too expensive. Well, we can adapt it in real time. Whereas when we're working with a client, they're basically like, we want you to do it this way. And we're like, well, that doesn't really work with like our systems or whatever, but we're going to try to do it. And it always inevitably is harder and takes more like rounds of samples and like more waste and more of everything. And it's just ironic because the clients are like, they expect that we're going to charge them less because they're doing the design. And I'm like, that's not the hard part. (laughs) Like the hard part is getting your two-dimensional sketch turned into a living, breathing, high quality garment. That takes skill. And that takes like not only skill to create that prototype, as you say, Kim, but also design all the processes to get that garment made in a production.
0: Design a sketch draw a sketch and make it into one piece sample and then make it into feasible into a mass production level it's totally different uh, things it looks like a linear process but
1: actually it means
0: totally different scales
1: And I know I sound a little bit like a broken record here, but I want to I want to say it again. Transparency, transparency, transparency. I mean, one of the things, Rachel, that strikes me as you describe this is was something you said about price. You know, oh, if 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 while we're making the sample and the production team says that this is going to be really tricky and we decide it's too expensive, we can adjust it in real time. That sounds so straightforward and so obvious. But a lot of times, I mean, I've been in situations where the customer, the brand that you're working for doesn't, nobody wants to be the first one to give out a target price. And so they'll say, oh, can you give me a quote for this? And so then you go through the whole process of making a sample. You come up with a piece, you put out, you know, a price based on that. And then, and then you get the response, oh, well, you know, Our our target price is actually a lot less than that, and sometimes it was even the target price was less than our cost price. So the, the the target price that the brand wanted to buy it from us for was less than what it actually cost us to produce it. But other times, when maybe the what the price that we quoted was a little closer to the target price, then you you go back to the drawing board and you're like, okay, well, how can we make this cheaper, right? Which maybe we could have done from the beginning had we had a sense of of what the target price was in the first place. But again, it's sort of like when there's when there's so little trust between these two parties, nobody wants to be the first one to put a to to put a number on the table because everyone kind of wants to, you know, see what the other person is going to say first. And and that that creates a lot of waste too.
3: Yeah, exactly. And I I think I mean, one of the things that we've been starting to articulate over the last year is that instead of seeing I mean, there's this sort of men- very American mentality that the customer is always right. And that bleeds into like a lot of industries. And it's particularly bad in the service industry where, you know, c- customers are also often very abusive of this the staff. And because they're supposed to be like – staff are supposed to be deferential to the customer no matter what. And I think in the fashion space, it's like whether we think about customers being like the actual end, end customer – in like a direct to consumer model or the customer as the wholesale buyer, like actually like we see our customers not as um, you know, I think there's this mentality that the customer is supporting me by buying my product, but actually like, I'm also giving that customer a thing that they want that's of value and that's taken a lot of time and energy and thought to produce. And this is, should be an equal exchange that benefits both of us. So the customer is not supporting me or giving something to me. They're, like we ha- should have, we are an equal playing field. We are partners mm-hmm. and within the sustainability space, like I see it as like the customer. And again, whether that customer be a brand or whether that customer be a, you know, a buyer from a whole set, like from a boutique or the final customer, the customer is our partner. They're not our, you know, benefit. Like they're not our like um, patron or something like that. Right. Like, we are equal. Like, yes, they're giving us money, but also...
0: They cannot make it on themselves <laughs> or they don't know. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and we only have...
2: Yeah, I just want to add, like, from the first... when uh, when, uh A bit when Rachel said about... Uh, when we said about, like, making sample, and you said that, oh, it painted like, uh, when we put, like, the sample for, like, production, because you guys have, like, the the pattern maker like yeah, yeah different but we actually we have like people who working on sample but we also want like production to help with this so they realize in upfront that oh this one is like a hard product and one thing is good uh in really about like uh people like know it in advance like oh this product is gonna be like this and I mean, like, it's difficult, but also think that they know up from, so they're feeling, okay, this will go to, like, uh, in the next few months. So, it's kind of like, you know, they're not really, like, saying no, they just, like, okay, they, like, they will, like, uh make it, like, much better and much better. So, I think this really, like, something, like, good in Tunelay. <laughs>
1: I think like one of the things that I saw happen when production then was working on samples is like I know you when I was at Strait on Sometimes you would come to me and you would say, "Kim, we have to tell Rachel, but like production <laughs> just like can't do this project, yeah. this product." And then I, and then we would go and we would tell Rachel, and then the design would change as a result. And that is, you know, I go back to this example of the red that Jesse and I, mm-hmm. you know, that Jesse and I described. Uh, from a very different context. And like, that just doesn't happen, I don't think in other other contexts. And Rachel would maybe be like, oh, you guys can definitely do this and push back a little bit, you know, in the sense that, you know, <laughs> we do have to be, we do, we do on our side, we do want the product to be as easy as possible to make. And on Rachel's side, Rachel is really tuned into, well, what are people actually going to buy? And and this has to be like a, a high quality, unique and interesting product and that that sort of has to be balanced, right? And I think there is sort of like this Sample making was, or or the periods when we were designing new collections were always the most stressful periods because there was sort of this inherent tension. But instead of like, it sort of being this dead end where one side says this and the other side says that or has to adapt or else lose the order. It was a a tension that was very constructive
3: and really led to a better result for everyone. Right. Like how can we work together to make something come out of this rather than, you know, and again, I go to that like kind of extractive like model where it's like, what can I get from you versus like, how can we work together to create something that's going to work for all of us? And, you know, it's definitely there's tension between like sales and I mean, the sales side of a business and like the production side of the business, because what's good for production isn't necessarily always what's good for sales and vice versa. But at the same time, like, I think that we have to think about building business models that do work for everybody and that are like mutually beneficial and I do think that that's possible but it has to be a conversation it has to be a like a back and forth and a give and take and then and also like part of thing
2: that we like keep changing also like uh, you know like about like communication with people and how we feel like how we explain to them and they like accept it so even like sometimes we have like a frustrated like feeling but at the same time, like, okay, we try to be better. But the thing is, like, the people around us try to, like, uh, get it and try to change, like, together. I think this, this like, the yeah. thing that we, like, are frustrating, but not really, you know, like, uh, it's not, like, I mean, I feel like people, like, uh, they really, like, uh, okay, we're frustrating together, but we also try to, like, change it together. It's, it's working, you know, it's something, like, the result is better, <laughs>
1: and the fact that that the sales side of the business and the production side of the business that you're all one company it totally changes the conversation because one of the things Jesse and I have talked about a lot with different guests on this show who are from let's say more conventional manufacturing environments and I've even written about this myself is how like when I'm a supplier and I'm dealing with a brand that's my customer that's an external entity like I am you know I, I was very guarded in my encounters and I didn't want to share t- things about how we were producing the products or, you know, I, I didn't always want to give a lot of detail because I was always worried like, well, if I tell them that, then they'll know how long it takes me to make it. And they'll tell me or, or you know, they'll know how much my scrap rate is or whatever it is. And then that'll be used. They'll They'll use that information that I've given them to request a lower price. Mm-hmm. And and I think like, or go somewhere else. On the one hand, you guys have this really interesting model, which is worthy of showcasing in and of itself. But I think the important thing to also underline or to emphasize in this conversation is what makes that possible, and how different it is to, to, you know, why this collab, why the ownership structure is in a and the shared risk effect, effectively, the sort of shared goals that come along, you know, that come along with this structure and how essential that is to sort of opening the communication between different, different parts of the, of the process and of the business. Yeah. 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 And that doesn't mean that you know, you could never have this kind of relationship if you have a brand and a supplier who are under different ownership. Um, and in fact, we have another episode where we talk to Arien, the CEO of Pactix, and Sierra from a Pactix customer called Chico Bag, who described in some ways a, a similar scenario. But that has to do, I think, they, they've, they've both got, um, Sierra uses the term, skin in the game. And the, the way that the financial risks are distributed between the brand and the supplier. Thank you for listening to Manufactured. To learn more about our guests and the issues we've chatted about today, sign up for our weekly newsletter on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com or find us on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast.
0: We'd also love to hear your stories and what you think. Collecting with this is the most rewarding part of what we do. So please don't be shy.
1: To be the first to find out about new episodes, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love it if you left us a review. Leaving a review helps other people find our show. And finally, if you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our website homepage.
0: Thanks for listening, and see you next week.